Well, good morning, church. You can go ahead and open your Bibles up this morning to the book of Revelation. At the end of your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter together this morning. So that's going to be verses 1 through 20. So as you go ahead and get turned there, I'll read the text for us. And I'm going to be reading from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, this morning. So the Lord says through the Apostle John, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every knee will see him, or sorry, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, and amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, because the word of God and the witness of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard him behind me. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write in a scroll that you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes from his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So this morning, I have four points. I don't typically preach sermons this way with with 
points. Um, but I think for the sake of our time together and uh, thinking through the content of Revelation, this is probably going to be for the best, at least for this morning, I think it will be. So if you're a note taker, the four points that I have for you this morning are this. The timing of Revelation, the audience of Revelation, the weird content of Revelation, and the importance of Revelation. Those are our four points this morning. So we'll go ahead and start with our first point, which is the timing of Revelation. I want you to notice with me, if you would, in our text this morning, in Revelation 1, in verse 1 and in verse 3, when it is that John believes that the, the events of the letter are going to occur. Look with me there, if you would. In verses 1 through 3, he says this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is an apocalypse. It is an unveiling, in other words. It says, which God gave to him to show to his slaves the things which must, here it is, soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And here we go again in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is... So it's very clear that John believes that the events that he is writing about in this letter are events that must soon take place. That's what he says in verse 1. He says these things must, must soon happen. That's also what he says in verse 3. He says that the time in which these things are going to occur are near. So that's important. Keep that in mind as we work through today's sermon. This leads us to our second point, which is the audience of Revelation. Now, I believe that this is extremely important, and I think that it's one of the most overlooked things in this letter. Many times, brothers and sisters, those who teach this book automatically assume that this letter is written to us today. In fact, you'll actually even hear pastors and exegetes out there try to do exegetical gymnastics in trying to prove that the seven churches that John is writing to is some kind of allegory or symbol for churches throughout history. But that's actually not how the symbolism in Revelation works, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But these aren't just allegories in which the interpreter can import categories. John is doing something very specific, as we'll see in our next point. He's actually using the Bible to define the symbolism here in this book. But here's what I want you to know at this point. The audience of Revelation is not the church today. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there aren't things here that have implications for the church today. But mainly, this letter was written to seven literal historical churches that existed in John's day in Asia Minor. We actually learn the identity of these churches in verse 11. Look with me there if you would. In verse 11, we see that John was to write in a scroll all that he saw and that he was to send it to the seven churches, which are initially mentioned in verse 4. The, four, or the seven churches are the church in Ephesus, which we have a letter to by Paul in the New Testament. He was to send a letter to the church in Smyrna, to Pergamum, 
to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Here's how you ought to think about the book of Revelation. You ought to think of it as being male to someone else. It's not addressed to you. It's addressed to its original audience, but it's written for you. It's something that you were able to read and draw application from. So that's very important. Very important. It's going to I'll bring this all together in our, our last point here whenever we talk about the importance of Revelation, but I want you to see the original audience of Revelation. This takes us to our third point, which is the weird content of Revelation. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. In Revelation 1, we encounter what is described by many as weird content. So in verses 9 through 20, we see Jesus depicted as having eyes of fire, his face is like the sun, he stands among seven lampstands, he holds seven stars in his hands, his, um, his body is like burnished bronze that is glowing in a furnace. Uh, from his mouth there uh, is a voice that has the sound of many waters, right? Weird, weird stuff. So what exactly is going on here? And how can we make sense of it? Well, the weird content can be understood in this way. John is stacking what is called heptamerous patterns or sevenfold patterns on top of one another. Now you may ask, well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's, here's what I'm meaning. John is taking patterns that are given to us elsewhere in Scripture, mainly in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, and he is stacking them like layers on top of one another. So the very first pattern that he is using here is the seven-day creation pattern found in Genesis chapter 1. And recall with me, if you would, that pattern. On the first day of creation, what was it that God did? He separated the light from the darkness. What did God do on the second day of creation? Well, he put a firmament in the heavens that divided the waters above from the waters below. What did God do on the third day of creation? He caused the dry land to rise up from the waters beneath the earth. What did God do on the fourth day of creation? He fixed the sun, moon, and the stars in the firmament heaven. On the fifth day of creation, he filled the waters with swarming and teeming things. On the sixth day of creation, he created the great land beasts and humanity. And on the seventh day of creation, he Sabbath or rested. So that's the first pattern that John is dealing with. And you'll see what I mean here more in just a moment. But there's another pattern pattern stacked on top of this one. And actually, there's several. The next one is the creation of the garden and the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. So this is also a heptamerous or sevenfold pattern. So in Genesis chapter 2, the chapter unfolds in a sevenfold pattern. We see the creation of Adam. God creates him from the dust of the ground and breathes the breath of life into him. and He becomes a living being. And then he takes Adam, and what does he do with him? He puts him in a garden. That's the second point in the pattern. And then in the garden, he 
plants trees and creates rivers, go forth and river of uh, water the garden. And after that, he takes Adam and he puts him as the keeper of the garden. And then he gives him a command. What were the commands? Adam, you can eat of these trees, but you cannot eat of this particular tree. And then we see him put Adam into a deep death-like sleep. And from his side, he creates his bride, Eve. And then we see that they are naked and unashamed. So I hope that you can start to see some of the correspondence here between these two heptamorous patterns. So think about it here, right? Here's some of the obvious ones, okay? On day three of the original creation week, God put the dry land, he calls the dry land to rise from the waters. In the creation of Eden, in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, he fills it with trees and rivers. So there is a correspondence between dry land and waters, okay? On the sixth day of creation, God created the land beast and humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, in the sixth point of that pattern, we see the creation of Eve. On the seventh day in the original creation, God rested. He Sabbath. And here at the end of Genesis chapter 2, sorry, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, we see that the man and the woman are naked and unashamed. Those two correspond to one another as well. And here's how. Think about it. Whenever you rest at night and you lay down to rest in your bed to Sabbath, what do you do? You take your clothes off and you rest, right? That's the correspondence here. So this John is stacking these patterns on top of one another. Now, there's two more that we'll look at. There's actually a few more, but for the sake of our time together this morning, we'll just look at two more. The next one is the festival cycle of Israel. This can be found in Leviticus chapter 23. And there we see that God gives Israel how many festivals? Seven festivals. And it starts off with the Sabbath. And then it goes from the Sabbath to the Feast of Passover. It goes to the Feast of First Fruits. That's the third. It goes to the Feast of Pentecost. That's the fourth. It goes to the Feast of Trumpets. That's the fifth festival. It goes to the Feast of Atonement. That's the sixth festival. And that is, uh, then it goes to the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. That is the seventh festival. Now, how do these correspond? Well, again, here are some of the obvious ones. On the third day of creation, God calls the dry ground or the dry land to rise from the waters below the earth, and he calls the trees to spring forth that were seed-bearing plants. In the creation of Eden on the third day, God calls puts rivers and trees in the garden. Now, in the festival pattern, first fruits is the third feast. And first fruits dealt with what? Plants, trees, gardens. Israel would take the first fruits that they grew from their land and they would dedicate it to God. So that corresponds with the seed-bearing plants that arise from the dry land and the trees and the rivers put in the garden. One of the next obvious ones is the Feast of Pentecost. Okay, So on the fourth day of creation, God filled the firmament heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. On the fourth uh, point of the creation of Eden, God puts Adam in the garden. So he is the ruler of the creation. He's like the sun, moon, and stars. He is the son of God. Okay, so he corresponds to the sun, moon, and stars, as all of the sons of God in the scriptures do. 
And now the fourth feast is the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. Now, this should immediately start to click for you here. What was it that occurred on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? The Spirit of God descends from the firma, from, from above the firmament heavens, where the sun, moon, and stars are fixed. And tongues of flickering fire descend and rest upon the apostles. So I hope that you see here, we're, we're dealing thematically with sun, moon, and stars, right? With fires and lights in the sky. Adam as a ruler, now on Pentecost, fire from above, right? Now, here's, I'm going to save, save this um, for the next one, but there's another corresponding point to that too. Uh, we'll just get to that here in a minute. But Okay, so that's some of the real obvious ones. Another one of the obvious ones is... Uh, the sixth day of creation. So God uh, creates humans uh, in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, he opens the side of Adam and brings his bride out from his side. So there's bloodshed. This corresponds to the sixth fe feast of Israel, which is atonement, where there was bloodshed. So I hope you see some of these correspondences. Now, the next pattern that we're going to look that gets stacked on top of the, these others is the tabernacle pattern okay so the uh, tabernacle pattern we uh, we see it in the book of Exodus uh, God gives the blueprints uh, he gives the blueprints to to Moses on the mountain and that will go for the building of the tabernacle and then later will correspond to the temple but we have, interestingly, uh, seven pieces of furniture and seven different uh, things given for the tabernacle. It's a sevenfold heptamerous pattern. And first piece that we, the first piece that we see is the Ark of the Covenant. The second is the veil, which separates the holy place from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Then we see the altar and the table. Next, we see the lampstands. Next, we see incense. Then we see mediators. Then we see the Shekinah glory cloud that would come down over the Holy Holies and would fill that place, okay? So, let's put it all together here, okay? So, John is taking these four patterns, the creation pattern in Genesis 1, the creation of the garden in Genesis chapter 2, the festival pattern given to Israel in Leviticus 23, and the tabernacle pattern found in the book of Exodus. John is taking all of these together, he's sandwiching them together, and he's using it for the symbolism here in the book. And I'll show you exactly what I mean here in a minute. But I want to draw forth here again just some of the obvious correspondences so you see them. So on the fourth day of creation, God fills the firmament heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. He also puts Adam in the garden as the ruling light, right? That also corresponds with the fourth feast of Israel, which is Pentecost, which is when fire descends from heaven. That also corresponds, here it is, with the tabernacle and the lampstands. That's the fourth piece of furniture we see given in that pattern in Exodus. So I hope you see here, there are thematic literary connections between all of these things here. And John is using these kind of like a... You can kind of think of him as, as he's, he's using these things to paint a picture here, to paint an apocalypse is how Peter Lightheart describes it in his commentary on Revelation 1 through 11. So now we're going to start to make some sense of what's going on here. So what is John talking about here whenever he describes Jesus as standing among the lampstands 
with a golden sash across his chest, with having eyes that are like a flame of fire, his feet that are like burnished bronze, glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of many waters, holding seven stars in his hands. Like, what is John doing here? Well, basically, to put it simply, he is playing off of the fourth day of creation, the fourth day in the creation of Eden, the fourth festival of Israel, and the fourth piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Jesus is standing among the what? The lampstands, which is the fourth piece of furniture in the tabernacles. Jesus has what kind of eyes? Flaming fire. And his face is described as what? Shining like the sun. This corresponds to the fourth day of creation when God fixed the sun, moon, and the stars in the firmament heavens. Jesus is also, his feet are like burnished bronze that are glowing in a furnace. Right? This corresponds again to the fires, the sun, moon, and stars, the fire of Pentecost. Right? Hope that you see these thematic connections here. But and here's where it gets interesting, too. Um, what's he holding in his hands? Seven stars. Again, playing off the fourth day of creation. God fixes the stars in the firmament heaven, and now Jesus, as the Lord and the King of kings, holds them in his hand. So that's how John is depicting him here. I mean, we're talking very high Christology here. John is identifying Jesus not only as Daniel's son of man, who is the cloud rider from the book of Daniel, but also as the Yahweh figure, the one who has white wool hair, whose eyes are like the flame of fire, the one who fixed the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament heavens. He holds them in his hand, right? So that's what's going on here. Actually, whenever we start to dig in and we can see here what... Um, my friend Mike Bull calls the Bible matrix. This is what he calls this these layers. Okay, He calls this the Bible matrix. When we see this, that John is playing off of this Bible matrix, we're able to make plenty of sense of what's going on here. We actually learn that John isn't some kind of madman who's uh, seeing, who's went mad and, and just rambling and making things up and seeing allegories. That's not what's going on here at all. John is thinking scripturally, and he's putting all of these patterns together in his head to interpret the, the apocalypse or the unveiled things given to him by Jesus Christ. Now, you may ask the question, well, why, though, is John doing things this way? Why is he thinking in terms of sevenfold patterns, and why is he stacking them together and looking through them to interpret phenomenologically the things that he is seeing. The best answer that I could give you to that question is this is just the worldview of Jewish people like John in the day of Jesus. I mean, think about it for a moment, okay? As moderns, we have our own particular worldview, right? We see the world through a very particular lens, and that's our worldview. Most people who are moderns view it through the lens of billions of years, evolution, descendant from, from apes, that kind of thing, right? And, and that forms the way that they view the world, that, views the, uh, that, um, that affects the way they view ethics and things like that. Well, that's exactly what John is doing here. 
okay? He is viewing the world through the lens that God gives throughout Scripture. He begins with Genesis 1 and the cosmology that God gives to the people of Israel, the seven-day creation week. On top of that, he sees another sevenfold pattern in Genesis chapter 2, and he adds that one on to the original one. You can kind of think of it as like a if, musically as being a harmony and a, a melody, right? They're different, but they, they go together and they form uh, one piece. And then on top of that, he stacks Israel's festival patterns on top of that, and then he stacks the sevenfold furniture of the tabernacle, and that becomes the the eyes or the glasses that John uses to interpret everything. So it's no different than what we do. It's just that he's doing that with his own particular worldview and cosmology that they would have understood. So that's why it's foreign to us today. So that would be my answer to that question. Now, now I want to ask the or answer the question, like why is all of this important? Okay? We've basically just spent half an hour um, doing a primer on how to interpret Revelation. We've talked about the, the timing of Revelation. We've talked about the audience of Revelation. We've talked about the weird content of Revelation. But, but why is that important? Well, it is my contention and my thesis that when we take these things together, these three things together, it informs us about how to properly interpret the book of Revelation. Right? Think about it, okay? Right? When we get these points that I'm talking about here this morning, what we see is we see a letter that was written to a very particular audience in a very particular time about particular events that would occur in their own particular day. Right? Well, I mean, this is a letter about events that John said would soon take place. And he's letting the churches in Asia, the seven churches, know that these things are coming. What's coming? Well, it's the destruction of not the world, but a world. Right? We see John depict Jesus here as a, the great high priest standing in the temple. John turns... Behind him, and he sees the great high priest, Jesus, dressed in priestly robes. In verse 13, he's got a gold sash across his chest. Gold is a kingly color, so he's, he's, uh, he sees, he's a prophet, priest, and king, okay? But he sees him dressed as a priest, and where is it he's standing? Among the seven golden lampstands. Where are the golden lampstands? They're in the temple. For those of you who don't know what's going on here, the temple was a microcosm. A microcosm simply means a miniature cosmos, okay? So if you went into the temple, it was, uh, it was um, constructed architecturally like the, the world, right? You went in and it had trees um, dressed in gold on the sides, right? It had um, depictions of angels, right? It, it had all of those things. So it's, it's a microcosm. So... John sees Jesus standing in the temple. And as we go further on in the letter here, we learn that Jesus is going to destroy this world, the, the old world of the Jewish microcosm. That's what Matthew 24 is about with the Olivet Discourse. Jesus comes out there. He says that he is going to destroy 
the temple, that there, that there won't be a stone left uh, unturned, that they will all be cast down. And he says it's going to be the, the falling of the sun, moon, and stars in Matthew 24. Right? In other words, those who had been stalled in the firmament heavens as the ruler, the rulers of the temple world, right? the religious rulers in Jesus' day, they're going to be cast out. And then there's going to be a new creation. We see that beginning at the cross of Jesus, whenever his side is open, just like Adam in the original creation. But there's going to be a new creation, and there's going to be um, new people fixed in the heavenlies. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that believers, those who are united to Christ by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, that they are the ones who are fixed in the heavenlies now. So we are now the sun, moon, and stars. We are now the rulers over God's new temple, the church. And so basically, though, what John is doing is he is letting the churches know that the old world, the world of the temple, the Jewish temple, is about to come to an end. And that prophecy is fulfilled in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, Jesus destroys the temple. He comes on the clouds in judgment, not in the second coming, but in a coming in judgment, and he destroys their temple. And he's letting the churches in Asia know that when this happens, there is going to be this great diaspora. The Jews are going to disperse across the lands. And and actually in Revelation chapter 3, we see this in the letter to the church in Philadelphia. There in verse 9 of chapter 3, John tells them, well, Jesus, through John, says, Behold, I'm giving up those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. So he's giving up on those who who say that they are Jews, that they are the descendants of Abraham, but who are only descendants uh, in the fleshly sense. And he says this, he says, But behold, I will make them come to you and bow down before your feet, and I will make them know that I have loved you. So basically, what Jesus is alerting these churches to through the Apostle John, his slave, is that he is going to destroy the old world. And the churches need to know this. They need to know what's happening, and they need to know what to expect. There are going to be some there who come, and they're going to bow at their feet in Revelation 3.9. But there's going to be some there who are going to be persecuted and who are going to experience tribulation and and poverty and blasphemy by those who are of the synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2, 9. And he's preparing the church for this. He's telling them that they need to persevere. They need to continue to follow him or else he will remove their stars as well. He says here in the letter, he, um, he tells them that if they do not repent, He tells this to the church in Ephesus, they do not repent. And if they do not return to their first love, he will come and remove their lampstands. And he talks about how they have fallen like the sun, moon, and stars in the old world. So this is a covenant lawsuit. Jesus is about to bring the curses of the covenant upon the Judaic people, the Jewish people. He's going to destroy their microcosmic world, the temple, And he's preparing the church, the seven churches in Asia Minor, for what's about to happen. And he's also warning them not to fall in the same errors. 
It's a very interesting what's going on here. There's a, a type of what I would call a flippening. Um, in the, the old covenant, in the old world, in the world of the temple, the Jewish people were mediators to the nations. They prayed for the nations. They offered up 70 uh, bulls during the Feast of uh, Booths for the, the Gentile nations. And now there's been this great flippening happen. Now the nations are about to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. So now, okay, so that's what's going on here, okay? And so whenever we take these things together, it, the, the letter informs us that this is what's happening if we read it closely and understand the symbolics of what's going on here. Um, so that has implications. And here's the implications. Because this book is primarily talking about things that have already occur- occurred in John's own day, that means that we need not read the book of Revelation with our newspapers open next to it, which is the temptation for so many of us. I would even go as far to say that we should not read the book of Revelation with Josephus's antiquities beside of it either. Neither of these are the key to interpreting the letter. John is using the Bible and structures found in the Bible, heptamerous cycles and patterns found scattered all throughout to inform the things that he is saying. So that's one implication. The next implication is this. Because this book is about things that have already occurred, that means that the world that we are living in is not going to hell in a handbasket. Listen, I run across so many well-meaning Christians frequently who say things like, well, there's no use to invest your time in missions and, and outreach and those types of things like that because the world's getting worse. More and more people are falling away from the faith. And because of that, you're, you're just wasting your time and your resources. What you need to do is bunker down. I think John MacArthur said that you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. But here's the reality. If the book of Revelation isn't about the end of our world, but the end of a world 2,000 years ago, then that means that we're not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. That means that the work that we do now does matter. And that should inform us as we go on living our lives, seeking to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave to us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And as we continue to go along, I'm going to make the case that the future that lies ahead of us isn't dark. There may be dark seasons here and there, but but I want to make the case as we go along in this series that history is going upwards into God. And then at the end of this thing, it's going to end in victory, not defeat. It's going to end in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, not the failure of it. And so the story that we tell ourselves this morning, brothers and sisters, it matters. And this is why this book is important. Because if we do not interpret it properly, we will tell ourselves the wrong story. And it will affect how we do things in the here and now. Here's another example of that. I see this frequently. People who say, you know what, I would have kids, 
but I feel like that there's no use in me bringing up children in this dysfunctional, awful world that we're living in that's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, just, just think about that. Think about how this story informs the decisions that people make in the here and now. This is why revelation is important, brothers and sisters. This is why it's very important that we learn to properly interpret this book so that we can actually rightly apply it to our lives. So, with that in mind this morning, let's pray together. We'll come back next week for more. If you would, pray this prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And Amen.